The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. Open your Bibles to uh, Acts chapter 15. So we're going to look at the last half of Acts Acts chapter 15. And uh, this was a time when, you know, really, this is basically the middle of the book of Acts. We're at least, uh, you know, several decades into the church. It's not like Pentecost happened a couple of weeks ago. It's been a few decades. The church has grown and it has been blessed. And one of the things that happens whenever there's blessing and whenever there's multiplication, there come challenges. There comes, well, we, we have an enemy and he doesn't like the church to grow. And so he attacks it and he tries to divide and distract. So there was a big battle going on in the early church because you know, within a couple of decades, there were way more Gentiles because, you know, Peter opened the door to the Gentiles through the house of this Roman centurion named Cornelius. And then the gates were opened. And now Paul and Barnabas have gone around this missionary journey around the Mediterranean and everywhere they go, they plant churches. Now they go to the Jews first because they had the scriptures. They had the prophecies about the Messiah. But then the door was open to the Gentiles, and before you knew it, the the Jewish people were the minority in their synagogues, and the Gentiles were coming more and more and more. And the legalist kind of Jews, some Pharisees, who, you know, wonderfully came to believe Jesus is the Messiah. So there there are many Pharisees in heaven that got saved, and they got the message, and they got who Jesus was. But there was a little bit of that legalism. They're going, wait a second, this is way too easy for those guys. They just hear about Jesus, they believe in him, and they get saved? Look how hard it's been for us all these years. Number one, they got to get circumcised and become Jewish. Number two, let's put the yoke of the law on them. Do you know how hard it is to follow the Ten Commandments? Let alone underneath those ten, if you, you list out every one of them, there's 613 commandments that come out of the silos of the 10. How many would agree that's a lot of laws? (laughs) And the Gentiles, they knew none of them and were following none of them. Okay, so they believe in Jesus, they have the divine revelation, but so a big controversy and, and so Paul and Barnabas have to go to Jerusalem, they have a big Jerusalem council. And if you weren't here with us last week, in the first half of the chapter, they basically made the decision that no, Gentiles don't have to get circumcised. Translation, they don't have to become Jews. And then to have the yoke of the law in the way that the Jews had been given it, but by that salvation is by grace through faith. So we're gonna go back a little bit. I wanna uh, go back to verse 13, or actually verses 15 through 17. Acts 15, I guess beginning in verse 15, James finally got up because Peter said, no, uh, you know, he said, look, I was preaching about Jesus, the Messiah, and the Gentiles were listening and believed while I was delivering my sermon and the Holy Spirit, Peter says, it wasn't me, it was God. The Holy Spirit came on them and filled them and saved them and baptize them in his power and his presence. And he goes, so if, if God has already come upon them, why are we going to add something? And then, so Peter got up and talked. Paul and Barnabas got up. They only give one verse for Paul and Barnabas because Paul's gonna take up the whole last half of the book of Acts. We'll be following a lot more about him. But then James got up. And as I mentioned last week, this James that got up, that kind of settled the whole deal 
was known as a very religious Jewish Orthodox follower, but he believed that Jesus, uh, he was Jesus' brother and he believed in uh, Jesus as the Messiah, very strict. And he kind of landed the plane, so to speak, by saying, no, they, they do not have to become circumcised. They don't have to follow the, or not follow, but they don't have to come under the yoke of the law. Let's let the Holy Spirit do it. But he said something very interesting, and I want to go back to it in verse 16, actually, um, or we can start in verse 15. It says, and with this, the words of the prophets agree. So this is James now quoting scripture. Just as it is written, after this, I, now this is God, will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles. So now James is quoting Old Testament biblical prophecy that yes, God's heart was for the Gentiles. He's fulfilling prophecy right now in the days of the book of Acts. Even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does all these things. So that's a very important uh, quotation. It's from the prophet Amos chapter nine, verses 11 and 12. So after we've established that, you know, there, he's making the point, you know, to be saved, it is by faith. It has always been by faith. Starting with Abraham, God made a promise to Abraham. Abraham believed. And before Abraham had done anything or any righteous acts, God reckoned unto Abraham righteousness simply because of his faith. But it does bring up another issue. Okay, so that's salvation. But let's say you're all Jewish. I'm Jewish. We go back 2,000 years ago. And we have been raised with all these stories and with all these prophecies about God's plan for Israel, God's plan for the Jewish people, that God was going to use Israel as this light to the world and the temple and the glory of God. I mean, it was kind of there, there, you know, there was a plan for the Jewish people. Now that Jesus has come, is God totally done with the Jews or with Israel or the nation or the city of Jerusalem or the temple? Or what about the kingdom that's supposed to come from Jerusalem and then to the ends of the earth? And that is another situation. That's a great question. Uh, because it looked like, oh, then it doesn't even matter if there's you know, a temple or Jerusalem or an Israel or whatever. So here's a scripture that I want to have you read with me. Luke chapter 21, verse 24, because we're going to tie it in to why James quoted Amos chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. What he's telling the Jewish people is, no, God's not done with us. God is not done with Israel. God is not done with Jerusalem. He is not done with the tabernacle of David. And I will rebuild the tabernacle of David. So Luke 21, 24, let's read this out loud. Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. So what, what does that mean? What was Jesus saying? Jesus had predicted that because of the rejection of Israel and the leadership of Israel, of him, they did not accept him as the Messiah, the, the leadership rejected him and they helped 
basically with Rome for him to be executed and crucified. And then Jesus said, and guess what? It's gonna to happen to that precious temple. It's going to be destroyed. It's going to be torn down. He prophesied 40 years approximately in advance because it happened in 70 AD. It didn't happen in, in that moment with the disciples. But 40 years later, as Jesus said, when you see the city of Jerusalem surrounded by armies, flee, run to the hills and the mountains of Judea. He said, because not one stone shall be left on another. And they tore it down and they used the Roman army. Literally, these, some of these stones are so huge and so heavy. And there's to this day on Temple Mount in Jerusalem, not one stone left. And they, you can literally, when you go there, they threw them over the side because uh, Jerusalem is on a mountain. Mount Moriah, and they threw them over the edge and boom, 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 they went down. And there they are in the ruins, which is a very exciting, wow, these are the stones that were part of the temple. But you can see the proof of what happened. So there were certainly Jewish people that said, okay, so that's it, we're done. You know, it's now just the church. God takes a Jew and a Gentile and he makes one new man. But so does that mean that all those prophecies about Israel are done? They have no meaning, they have no fulfillment? And the answer that James gives is no, the day will come when God says, I will rebuild the tabernacle of David. Jesus here in Luke 21, 24 is talking about the end times, which nobody then knew it was gonna be 2000 years. And we think, wow, that's a long time. It would be so long that people would say, well, you know, where's the promise of his coming? And it's no wonder that were many within the church that said, hey, you know what, all those prophecies about Israel and rebuilding and the temple and all that, it must be just spiritual metaphors. It's not to be taken literally. And quite honestly, I can appreciate that. I understand that after, you know, a thousand years, 1500 years, 1700 years, 1800 years. It's like, yeah, so the church has replaced Israel. But Amos said, no, I will rebuild the tabernacle of David. Jesus said, Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Meaning there, there's a date of expiration and there's going to be a transition. The temple itself will actually be rebuilt. So Acts is describing the church age. But there is coming a time where the Lord is going to remove the restraint, the restraint to rebuild the temple. And I believe, so we are living in recent history where Israel, nobody could have imagined, only a very, very few. There were a few people in the Bible, some early church fathers, some through church history, some even, you know, in, in the... Uh, Reformation, they said, you know what? I, I don't believe that it's a metaphor. I believe that God is literally going to somehow, some way, in the end times, regather the Jewish people from the four corners of the earth back to their land. And not only that, but they will then, according to the scriptures, if Israel becomes a real nation again, it means they will rebuild a real physical temple again. And once that happens, we really are in the last days. I believe 
that the, you know, the age of the church, we've been in the age of the church for 2,000 years, now we have Israel, now we have Jerusalem, now they, since 67, have the Temple Mount, and I believe soon even a temple, and God is in the process of restoring the tabernacle of David. And in fact, the sign of confirmation that we're living in the last days is when we hear they are ready to rebuild the temple, the tabernacle, and offer sacrifices on Temple Mount. How many of you know that in Israel right now, there is a modern Sanhedrin? There hasn't been one for 2,000 years, but they made one. How many of you know that they've made all the furniture and garments for the temple? They have everything. They have a golden menorah, the censers, uh, the bronze, uh, the silver trumpets. They've got the ephod with the 12 stones representing the 12 tribes. They've got the golden plate that's on the, that'll be on the high priest for it, says holiness to the, they have everything. How many of you know that just recently they found a pure red heifer without any spot? They are ready the moment they are given permission to have a temple and then they're gonna be wanting to do sacrifice. Well, this is very interesting. Jared Kushner, you guys remember Jared Kushner? has launched the Abraham Accords Institute for Peace. So the world's attention is on a lot of other things that we've all been looking at, but right there, just below the surface of the headlines, Jared Kushner has launched, quote, the Abraham Accords Institute for Peace. And he wants to complete, this is what he is saying, complete the process of implementing the two-state solution that will ultimately divide Israel into two different countries. And then to deepen the agreements Israel has reached the last year with the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, Sudan, and Morocco. And not only that, in a moving uh, tree planting ceremony just recently at the Jewish National Forest, in a place called the Grove of Nations in Jerusalem, I don't know if you saw this or not, it didn't get very much attention, but it happened. The current Prime Minister of Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu, and then Jared Kushner, uh, they inaugurated what they call the Jared Kushner Garden of Peace in appreciation for Jared Kushner's key role in the Abraham Accords. And they said that very soon, they're going to be expanding those accords. And by the way, the new uh, President Biden administration says, we're not gonna switch that or change that, but we're behind that, we're with that. In other words, regardless of what has been happening politically, everything is still moving forward. Now, there's a scripture, either, I didn't put it in your notes, but if you wanna write it down, Joel chapter three, verse two. You can read Joel chapter three sometime this week. It's basically uh, the Old Testament version of the book of Revelation in the New Testament. It's talking about the end. And God says, in the end days, I'm gonna call all the nations of the earth and I'm gonna call you into judgment and I'm going to deal with you, every one of you. I'll bring you to the valley of Jehoshaphat now what that means, the Jeho word Jehoshaphat 
means God is my judge. Basically, God says, I'm telling you a day is coming when I'm going to be the judge of the nations of the whole earth. I'm gonna, my judgment is going to come upon you. And in Joel chapter three, verse two, he gives two reasons. Number one, because you scattered my people. Yeah, but they were scattered 2000 years ago. But God says, I'm still gonna hold you accountable for what you did and what you have done for 2000 years. And secondly, he says, because you divided my land. So they're talking about it. They're planning it. They're calling it a peace process to finally, you know, divide it into two official nations. And that sounds good and that looks good, but God says, but it's not your land, it's my land, and my land is not to be divided. And when you divide my land at that point, it's gonna open a Pandora's box of judgment like you have never known. So I share that with you so that you're aware of where we are we could be in for a very wild ride in the very near future should they finally do the deal and divide the land of Israel. Therefore, how should we then live? This is no time to be messing around. This is a time to be walking in obedience, hearing the voice of the Holy Spirit, praying about everything and loving and praying your family into the kingdom of God and walking with them and making sure you're seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these other things shall be added unto you. Can I hear an amen? Amen. Okay, so let's go back now to verse 22. Let's pick up the story of what happened back in Acts chapter two. It says, then it pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely uh, Judas, who was also named uh, Barsabbas. <laughs> so there's another guy that's named Judas, but he was also called Barsabbas. He probably, after Judas Iscariot, was like, yeah, I'd like to use my other name if you don't mind. Anyway, and Silas leading men among the brethren, and so they wrote this letter by them. The, so here's the letter. And thank God, boy, I tell you, I am, you know, very thankful for the letter they wrote and the decision they made that we are saved by grace through faith 2000 years ago. So the apostles, the elders and the brethren to the brethren who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria, Cilicia, all the new places where there's all these new churches. Greetings. Since we have heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with words, unsettling your souls saying, you must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandment. I love this, they're being very explicit, they're being very direct, you've heard this, it has troubled your hearts, you're wondering, do we have to do it, should we do it? We want you to know they did not come from us in Jerusalem, you know, the, the core apostles, so it seemed good to us, being assembled with one accord to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. So now they're sending Paul and Barnabas out. They're getting ready to send them out on another missionary trip, only this time they have a letter and they can show all the new churches that have all these new Christian Gentiles. This has been signed by all of the apostles from Jerusalem where it came from. And I have good news for you. You don't need to be circumcised. You don't have to have the yoke of the law thrown on your shoulders. Men who have risked their lives, talking about Paul and Barnabas, for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who will also report the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things. So now they're saying, so we've made one decision spiritually, but there are a few practical matters that you Gentiles were going to ask. That you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. That's it. Not very long, not very complicated. And I love this because what we have is a twofold decision. So I want to, you know, summarize this. Number one, they made a doctrinal decision. What's the basis of salvation? Number two, they made a practical decision. Now, Gentiles have very different laws, customs, habits, eating, and so forth. And you guys are now part with the Jewish people. And many of the churches are in homes. And you eat a lot together and fellowship together and have potlucks together. And it was creating a lot of conflict just culturally between them. So the doctrinal decision we basically looked at last week. And the church concluded that all Jews and all Gentiles are all sinners in the eyes of God. And that all need to be saved, whether Jew or Gentile. And that all sinners who are saved will be through faith in Jesus Christ. Amen? But doctrine must lead to obedience. So there were a few practical matters. There were two practical things that they also wanted to share. Uh, and so not only what we believe is important, but listen, how we live is also important. Our actions. So read with me uh, James chapter 2, verses 14 through 17. Let's read this out loud. What good is it, my brothers, if someone claims to have faith but has no actions to prove it? Is such faith able to save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food, and someone says to him, Shalom, keep warm and eat hearty, without giving him what he needs. What good does it do? Thus, faith by itself, unaccompanied by actions, is dead. So, okay, so this is very good because we're saved not by our good deeds of righteousness, but we're saved by our faith. Well, then what kind of faith is saving faith? Saving faith is not just that you intellectually agree with it, yeah, 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 but because you believe it, you are now motivated to do something and, and it changes your behavior. Now that change of behavior does not earn anything toward salvation, but it does demonstrate you have real faith. Does that make sense? So that's what they're saying. So the two commands that they gave were number one, willingly abstain from idolatry as well as all forms of immorality. And those were sins that were very prevalent among the Gentiles. <laughs> Eventually, we'll get to the church in Corinth, but you know their world, their, the way they were brought up, their worldview had all of these things. And they said, look, this goes whether old or new covenant, you need to stay away from idolatry because you can't have Jesus as savior and be worshiping another Greek God. And immorality, there needs to be a purity within your marriages, within your homes, and what God has joined together, let no man separate. But then they gave two concessions. 
Number one, abstain from eating blood. And two, abstain from eating meat from animals that have been strangled. So, you know, they didn't explain why, but if they started going, you know, the only churches, maybe they were in homes, but many of the teachers and leaders would have been Jewish, and the, the only Bible they had was the Old Testament, so they could go and say, okay, so they asked us from Jerusalem, you know, uh, we're, we're not to eat blood. You know, question, okay, we won't eat blood, but why? And that would give them and afford them the opportunity to explain, by the way, yes, in the law, Leviticus 17, 11, it says, you're not to eat uh, blood because the life of the flesh is in the blood. You're eating life in that sense. So, but uh, abstaining from blood was even given before the law. Back in Genesis, God said, I don't want you eating or drinking blood. There's something, because blood in, is kind of the spiritual DNA of our, it's like a physical manifestation of our spirit. The life of the flesh is in the blood. I don't want you to eat blood. I don't want you to drink blood. And by the way, that's why many occult things, demonic things, witchcraft things have blood. You're eating it, you're drinking it, you're mixing it. So there's the whole thing of idolatry, which was another big issue, is wrapped up in that. And the other thing is animals that have been strangled. And that's kind of a you know, second part of the first Deal, because if you strangle an animal, it's gonna have a lot of its blood left within it. So they were saying, no, don't eat animals that have been strangled in that way. Uh, and you know, there were very good reasons why God wanted to protect the animal kingdom. Even when you eat, their blood needed to be drained from them. And uh, you know, so anyway, that, that's basically what God said. And that's what he wanted. So if the Gentiles ate food, the Jewish believers considered unclean, it could cause unnecessary division within the church. And then also there would be an issue of conscience of you know, eating meat, sacrifice to idols, and that also was something that would bring, they needed some unity. So the Jews could eat with Gentiles, they could be together and they could have a family. Now personally, uh, you know, the, that word that is used from the biblical language of what is clean to eat, they're clean animals and unclean animals. There's clean ways to prepare food and there's unclean ways. And the reason the Bible spends so much time in that is in the cultures outside of Israel, much of their preparation of the food had a lot of witchcraft in it. It had a lot of dedications and prayers and you know strangling and abuse and all kinds of weird stuff that also kind of mixed spirituality into the eating that was unhealthy it becomes a window through which evil can come so uh you know personally if i'm gonna you know eat a hamburger i don't want to be thinking about yeah they strangled the poor cow and then i'm eating hamburger how many would agree with that so the word in hebrew is kosher so when you go to the store and you, know, you look at uh, whatever it is, some kind of meat or whatever, and if it says kosher on it, and a lot of people like kosher food, it has more, it's better tasting, it's more flavorful, it's healthier, you know, they've got all these reasons and it's kosher, but a lot of people don't realize that's a Jewish word. It's, and the word kosher means it was done in a way that's humane, it was done in a way that's clean, which will 
they're actually, God didn't just arbitrarily you know, talk about food, this and that. We now have with modern science verification that everything that God said about how to do food and how to prepare food and to do it in a clean way and don't leave the blood in it is actually healthier for your body. So without throwing you know, some legal trip on anybody, uh, the underlying message was to all these Gentiles, hey, when you have some kosher meat, you're gonna like it. And then you're gonna find out why it tastes better. And it'll give you more of a clean heart and a clean conscience, and you'll have more fellowship. And quite honestly, if you Gentiles would humble yourselves with all of your pagan rites and background and, and a lot of idolatry and witchcraft and stuff like that, it would be good for you to know some Jewish people and learn their ways and learn their customs and not be obligated by them or under the yoke of that, but they might be things that you of your own choice will bring into your own way of living and your own way of health and your own, and it'll be healthy for you as well as spiritual for you and clean for you. Can I hear an amen on that? So that's, that's where this all was going. And what I wanna say next is, I'm just gonna say this. This is a loving compromise that did not affect the truth of the gospel. I mean, this is a very good biblical example of how the church dealt with a very huge issue that, that could have had tremendous impact on the slow growth of the church had they chosen another way. But what I want you to realize is, uh, while they, they, they made a loving compromise. Every married person listening to this study tonight, every parent knows that there are times in your home where you just cannot compromise. And this is the line, and this is the way it's going to be. But I can also assure you that every marriage and every parent knows that there is a time when compromise is the best thing for the family, it's the best thing for the marriage, it's the best thing for the kids, is give a little, take a little, meet them in the middle, compromise. So what I want you to notice here is they did not compromise on salvation, they didn't doctor, uh, compromise on doctrine, but they did say in our practice and how we get along and go along, we have room to move. And, and it's, a very, it's a sign of spirituality. It's a sign of love. It's a sign of humility. It's a sign of maturity in Christ. When you can compromise and you, in, in a good way, in a healthy way, in a godly way, that actually instead of shutting the door or throwing the door closed, which legalism often has done, Okay, now we're not talking about you know, matters of eternal life, but you know, I could give a little, I could listen, I, I can learn, I can meet you halfway. And I love that, that right here in the Bible, in Acts chapter 15, the apostles uh, exercised a great example of loving compromise. Why? So that the church, made up of very different people with two very different backgrounds and cultures, could live in unity and in harmony. And what I wanna say is that what we learn by example from Acts 15 is something we could begin applying within our own homes, within our own marriages, in our own relationship with our children or grandchildren or people that you hope 
uh, to love and be able to influence. Can I hear an amen on that? Does that make sense? Love, say, say this out loud with me, loving compromise. Ready? Loving compromise. Yeah, it's a, it's a very beautiful and wonderful thing. All right, so now we get into uh, verses 30 through 41. And that we're going to kind of wrap uh, the message up with this. It says in verse 30, and so when they were sent off, so now Paul and Barnabas are on their way and, and Silas and the other guy are going to be going out and bringing a report uh, to all the churches waiting for what's the result in, in uh, Jerusalem. So when they sent them off, they came to Antioch. And when they had gathered the multitude together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, look what the response was. They rejoiced. That's a good sign that you've made the right choice. You've made a, a good example. Uh, you've, you've honored the Lord. You have promoted unity. You've also given some clarity. You've also, on a couple of issues, drawn a very clear line. You know, look, you, salvation is by grace through faith. End of story. So they rejoiced over its encouragement. They felt encouraged. Now, Judas and Silas, themselves being prophets also, exhorted and strengthened the brethren with many words. And after they had stayed there for a time, they were sent back with greetings from the brethren to the apostles. However, it seemed good to Silas to remain there. Paul and Barnabas also remained in Antioch, the, the original sending church up there in modern Syria teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. Now beginning in verse 36 to the end of the chapter, uh, the headline that I have for my Bible is division over John Mark. So here we go again, another issue of a division among the apostles, a very, very interesting one. Verse 36 says, then after some days, so a little time had passed, Everybody is, is absorbing the decision that was made and rejoicing in it. But Paul said to Barnabas, now let us now go back, you know, all those churches we started on our first missionary journey, and visit our brothers and sisters in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord. And let's see how they are doing. So, you know, it's a great idea. Now Barnabas was determined uh, to take with them John called Mark. That was his nickname, but he's called John Mark. But Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And then the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another. And so Barnabas took Mark and he sailed to Cyprus, which is his home, but Paul chose Silas. He grabbed another partner, another brother, and he departed, being commended by their brethren to the grace of God. And he went through Syria and Cilicia. Well, that's where Paul's home was from, strengthening the churches. So here's the question I want to ask you tonight. Who was right, Paul or Barnabas? And I believe that the answer is they were both right. How can they both be right? They were diametrically opposed to one another. What happened? We're not told exactly what happened, but uh, the area that they were traveling through, 
was a very uh, physically challenging area, a rough area. It was not a modern area. There, there was lots of badlands. There was single roads going through it for travelers. You know, long story short, there were lots of places where various groups of bad guys waited for people who were vulnerable and they know there's no police nearby or a city or a town and they would come and beat them up and rob them, maybe kill them or whatever. And John Mark, who had already traveled some with his uncle Barnabas and some even with the apostle Paul was younger and he was nervous and he was, let's just call it what it is, he was afraid. And he said, I don't wanna go, I'm not going there or I don't wanna do that. So now, okay, time has passed. The Jerusalem council's made a new decision. We're delivering the word, it's very encouraging. The Gentiles are excited. Okay, now we're really hungry to learn more about all kinds of things so we can go to the churches and even learn from the Jewish people, walk with them and fellowship with them. And Paul and Barnabas go, okay, let's go back to all the churches we started, visit them, encourage them, find out how they're doing, how we can pray for them, minister to them, whatever. Okay, cool, Barnabas says, I wanna bring John Mark with us. Paul goes, no way. Are you kidding? That kid is going to mess things up. I wonder if, uh, you know, Paul might have quoted Jesus and said, Barnabas, you remember what Jesus said? If any man puts his hand to the plow and then turns back, he is not worthy of the kingdom of God. We're not taking John Mark. And there's a point that Paul has, you know, when you're going out and your life is on the line as Paul's was, uh, you got to be all in. If you want God with you and to watch over you and protect you and it could take your life, you may end up being a martyr. You don't want people leaving you, abandoning you that you may need to rely upon for help, for travel, for prayer, for encouragement or whatever. So he lands with that. On the other hand, Barnabas was right. Uh, he knew that John Mark was gifted. He knew he was talented. He knew he was called. Sure, he had blown it. But he's like, haven't we all blown it at some point in our lives? Doesn't everybody need at some point a second chance? He's a younger guy. Can't he learn from this experience? Isn't this the very model of message that we want to give to all the people who have crashed and failed in their lives and that you can get back on your feet and seek the Lord? And if Barnabas said that, his very name means to be an encourager, he's right on. He's biblical, that's scriptural. And I would say, amen. So I listened to Paul and go, wow, yeah, I'm with Paul. You can't, you know, you go back and forth. I listened to Barnabas and he goes, give the kid another chance. I'm like, yeah, that's right too. So what do you do? <laughs> well, they fought about it. Now, they're two godly men, anointed men, early church leaders. They're the ones going out, spreading the gospel. So they prayed and did they compromise? No. Uh, did one talk the other one into being able to, you know, okay, let, so Barnabas saying, come on, Paul, be with me and, and give in just one more time. No. And Paul is like, I am not taking that kid with us under, I don't care how long you pray or how much in the night you pray. We're not taking the kid with us. It's not happening. So it became, now these are, this is the apostle Paul. This is Barnabas. They're godly men, both spirit-filled men. They're both kind of right. And the contention became so great that you know what they ended up saying? Okay, see ya, I'm going this way. I'm going to my home and my people and I'm bringing John Mark with me. And Paul's like, fine, 
I'm going to bring my new guy and I'll just raise him up and train him and I'm going to go to my family. So they went in two opposite directions. Now, there's part of me that thinks, wait a second, chapter 15 should be a little longer. They thought, they prayed. One of them humbled themselves and said, okay, I was wrong. I give in and they go together. But it doesn't say that. It leaves them like that. So what I want to say to you is, and here's what's interesting. You know, a lot of times on the Bible that will, you know, say a problem, an issue or whatever, and then they'll give you an answer. And then Jesus said, or the Holy Spirit said, or they prayed and they were given revelation. It says nothing. It goes on. Let's go on to the next chapter. (laughs) It leaves the story hanging. And so who's right? In a way, they're both right. And all I can say is that sometimes, because we live in a fallen, broken world, even the most godly, anointed, spirit-filled people may not be able to get together. And it may cause, you know, obviously that's what the devil wants. He's going, woohoo! Wow! I split up Paul and Barnabas. You know, that was like his goal, right? But what did Barnabas do? He became a new team of two with young John Mark, and Paul now becomes a new team of two with him and Silas. So now what the devil thought he won by dividing the two has now multiplied into four. In other words, I believe and I see and I know that God will take even the worst that the devil can do to us and he'll multiply what he's going to do. Can I hear an amen on that? So let us be patient with one another. We're not gonna have everything perfect. We're not gonna have everything figured out. And here's what's very interesting. And I guess I'll close with this. Colossians chapter four, verse 10. This is the apostle Paul who wrote one of 13 letters of the New Testament. And what does he say? Let's read it out loud. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner greets you with Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, about whom you received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. Now there are several other times that Paul mentions John Mark. In other words, I don't know who was right and wrong in the beginning, but I'll say down the road, Paul the apostle watched, he waited, he listened. So Barnabas, how'd it go? Yeah, it went good. How'd John Mark do? He was really good. Did he leave you? No. Were there some dangerous situations? Oh man, we thought we were going to eat our lunch. And he didn't even move. He didn't even twitch. Paul goes, wow. I want to see that young man the next time you come. I I want you to tell those people I'm with him. I love him. I support him. So Paul came full circle and he forgave him and he embraced him and he wrote his name to be commended in the New Testament so the church for the next 2,000 years would hear God patched up what was happening between John Mark and the Apostle Paul. Amen? Amen. Our God is an awesome God. He's an amazing God. He is a gracious God. He's a loving God. And there's so many of these things that are in the scriptures that we can learn from and grow from. And, uh, you know, we may not always get it right. Uh, we may grow in our understanding. We mature. The idea is that we start as infants, babes in Christ, and we grow to the full measure of the stature of the Lord Jesus Christ. That takes time. So be patient. I'm going to say, I'm going to end with this. Be patient with others. 
Be patient with them. And number two, I'm gonna say this. Be patient even with yourself. Don't be so hard on others, let alone you end up then being hard on yourself. And sometimes people are harder on themselves than even God is, and God's perfect. And God can be more gracious. Let us be more like our Father who art in heaven. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our weekend services held Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.